to the High Praises Church podcast. We hope you are blessed by today's sermon. Now here's lead pastor, Chris Starr. I want you to get your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm preaching a message today I've entitled, Jesus is Coming Soon. And you'll understand that when you get to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to preach, teach today sort of evangelistic, Matthew chapter 24, beginning of verse 36. Here's what it says, Jesus is speaking, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready. Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants, And to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you for respecting and reverence the word this morning. I want to begin this message today by just saying something that hopefully ought to evoke a response. Hopefully it'll just touch you. Here it is. Jesus Christ is coming again. Come on, amen. That's it. Go ahead. Jesus Christ is coming again. He came the first time as a baby born in Bethlehem. His mission when he came was to die on a cross for the sin of humanity and open up a new and a living way to God. He came to save to save sinners from from the penalty of death and from their sins. And thank God I'm glad to report he accomplished his mission. Hallelujah. But what you need to know is that just as he came the first time, he's coming a second time. There is a passage in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 that reads like this. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many and to those who eagerly await for him. Those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. He's coming again. Now for centuries, literally centuries, the church, beginning with the early church, saw the coming of the Lord, what's often called the parousia, it's a Greek word, as a one-dimensional event. They saw him coming uh, they didn't know quite when, when, but some thought it would be at the end of the tribulation. But they just knew he was coming back, and they just saw it as a one-dimensional event. 
But in the last hundred years in the church, God has helped us to see, and part of it is because of the, the times that we live in, that the, the coming of the Lord is actually a two-dimensional event. And so let me just take a few minutes to teach and explain. I'm going to go to part two first. Part two is the understanding, and Matthew 24 talks about this, that there will be a, what's called a tribulation period, the great tribulation. You may have heard about this. It will last seven years. We know that because from the prophecy of Daniel, the Daniel, there was 70 weeks that were established for the people of Israel, and 69 of those weeks have been fulfilled. But that final week of years, it's a week of years, so it's talk, actually talking about seven years, is going to be at the end of time. And so we can correlate that, that for seven years there will be a tribulation period. And at the end of that great tribulation, when God pours out his wrath on this earth and reestablishes his economy with Israel, the, na the nation of Israel, that at the end of that, Jesus Christ will come back from heaven on a white horse with his saints, and there will be the great battle of Armageddon, and when he has destroyed the enemies of God, he'll cast the devil into a pit uh, for a thousand years and lock him up, and then the Antichrist and the false prophet will be thrown directly into hell, and Jesus will set up a rule and reign on this earth that will last for a thousand years. Can you imagine with the, with the world headquarters of Jerusalem and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is ruling this earth and there will be no corrupt, fraudulent elections or banana republics or corrupt officials, but there will only be the glorified saints of God who will be appointed by Jesus. You might be the mayor of Anderson or Iva. Some of you want to be the governor of Bahamas or, or, the, or the Hawaii Islands. I'll leave that between you and the Lord. But the point is, we'll be the ones ruling and reigning with Jesus. Now, that's our destiny, and that's the second coming, part two. But we now understand, we've the, it's always been there in the Bible, but there was oftentimes a converging of these ideas that there is an event that we call the rapture of the church, the resurrection and the rapture. And the apostle Paul was actually the one that got the revelation about this because God caught him up into the third heavens and showed him things that nobody else knew. He got this incredible revelation from God and he called them mysteries. He said they're mysteries. He said they're things that were known but aren't known, but now they're being revealed. And one of the mysteries that God gave him was the mystery of the church. Initially, when the early church started, it was a Jewish group of people. Uh, Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. All the disciples were Jewish. And the early church, the people that were getting saved were Jewish people. And then some Samaritans got saved. And then what really changed everything was when Gentiles got saved. How many glad the gospel appeals to us? Hallelujah. And so, and so the, the gospel is being preached to the Gentiles and Gentiles. And, and here's what happened. The Gentiles and the Jews in the first century were adversarial. There was animosity between these two groups. And Paul said, God has showed me that God's going to take two groups of people that despise each other and hate each other, and he's going to save them and regenerate them and transform them and bring them together into one body called the church. And they're going to love each other, and they're going to care for each other, and they're going to just be one body of Christ. Nobody saw that coming. But God showed that to Paul. It was the mystery of the church. But there was another thing that God showed Paul, a mystery. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 15, he said, Behold, I show you a mystery. 
He said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment of the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible, and then we shall be changed. And so God showed him this mystery, and the mystery was that with the beginning of the church age, there must be a conclusion to the church age. Now, the Old Testament prophets, they, they kind of looked ahead in time, and if you can imagine a series of hills and valleys, hills and valleys. And the Old Testament prophets were looking from this direction so they could see the tops of the hills and they could see major events like the, the tribulation period and the 70th week and the, and the millennial reign of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. There were things that they could see, but they couldn't see in between the mountaintops and the valleys. And nobody saw in the Old Testament that with with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ at the top of this hill, there would be a valley that would last 2,000 years called the church age. And then it will go back up until the coming of the Lord, see, and then the tribulation period. So nobody saw that. And for 2,000 years, we've had the church age. And so Paul sees this, and he sees that there's going to be a conclusion to the church age. And he's got to take the people of God out of the earth so that he can pour wrath onto the earth. Now, there are people that believe that event happens pre-tribulation, and some believe it happens in the middle of the tribulation, and some people think it's all going to happen at the end of the tribulation, and they sort of combine two and one, part two, part one together. But I've always been pre-tribulation because I know the Bible says that we are not appointed to wrath but unto salvation. There are people that think we're actually going to go through the tribulation. I do not because that's when God pours his wrath out on sinners, and I'm sorry, but the wrath that's poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus, and I don't get any of that. Jesus took that for me at Calvary. And I'm not appointed for that, okay? I'm appointed to go to heaven. And so I'm believing that the church will be caught up and taken to heaven. And so that's part one where we believe that at any point in time, Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, is everybody good so far? I'm throwing a lot at you. That brings me to Matthew 24. Now, I, I am a preacher of the gospel. I'm a veteran I've got degrees, I understand hermeneutics, which is the, the science of properly interpreting the scriptures, okay? And preachers should be hermeneutically sound when they come to a pulpit or a lectern or a platform. And I always want to be hermeneutically sound. I don't ever want to preach things that, you know, are out there in left field and questionable. So to be honest with you, if you read Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 25 can sometimes be very confusing. How many of you know last day's things can sometimes be hard to understand? You don't believe that? Just read the book of Ezekiel and tell me how that goes. Because that's a rough book. I mean, it's a, it's a word of God, but I mean, it's like you're trying to figure out, what? What's going on here? Wheels in the middle of wheels and stuff. I mean, it's very sim symbolic. And so, so it's very hard to understand. But Matthew 24 talks about the tribulation period. And then it talks about that part two coming of Jesus where he comes back and he's going to catch, pull the elect, the Jews, save the Jews. And he'll save, how many know people get saved during the tribulation? It'll be tough though because you, you have to give your life for Jesus. You read it, they're martyrs. And they're, you're going to have to die. And so there'll be people that'll be saved. And, and those people, so that's what that's about. Well, as you get to verse 35 and get to verse 36, so that I'm fair. There are scholars that say what I just read to you, verses 36 to 51, is a continuation of what Jesus is talking about, the tribulation and, the, and, and his second coming part two. And yes, you can take what we just read and you can try to fit it to make it work with that, all right? 
Now, when you get to chapter 25 and you get to the, the virgins, the ten virgins, the five wise and the five foolish, I have had a hard time as a scholar and a prophecy scholar trying to make that fit into what was in 24. Because for me, the, the wise and the foolish virgins screams about the church and, and being ready and not ready in the church and the coming of Jesus Christ. But to be fair, I'm sure that there are people that could probably just keep saying, no, this is about Jesus pulling the Jews out and the tribulation saints. What I'm telling you is I'm going to preach it a different way today because it is hermeneutically sound that there are lots of places in the Bible where something can mean more than one thing. It can have a dual application. And I believe that what I just read, 36 through 51, is one of those passages that can refer not to the part two second coming of Jesus, but can actually refer to the part one of coming of Jesus, the rapture and the resurrection. And by the way, if you want an example, John the Baptist came to this earth as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and, and that was prophesied. And so they were, he was talking to the disciples one day about John the Baptist, and somebody asked him, and he said, well, doesn't the Bible says? why does the Bible say? Because when they had come off the Mount of Transfiguration, they had actually seen Elijah and Moses on the mountain. And the disciples said to him, well, why does the Bible say that Elijah must come before the, the great and terrible, dreadful day of the Lord? And Jesus said, Elijah will come. In other words, if you read, there's going to be two men, and I think it's Moses and Elijah, that will show up in, in the book of Revelation. You can read about these two witnesses. I think it's Moses and Elijah. He said, Elijah will come before the great and dreadful, terrible day of the Lord. But he said, but if you can accept it, Elijah has already come. And then they said he understood he was talking about John the Baptist. So see, John the Baptist was a type of symbol, a forerunner of Christ, just like Elijah will be a forerunner of the coming of Christ when he sets up. So just as Elijah, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' first arrival, he'll prepare the way for Jesus' last arrival when he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth. Is everybody thoroughly confused or you all got this? Okay, so... That's stated, let's go back to the text and I'll preach. None of that was in my notes, so now we're, now we're back to preaching. So you have this passage that's talking about the return of Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about part one. So I'm going to focus on the rapture and the resurrection. What does this verse tell us then? Because I feel very confident that it can apply to both returns. What does it, I think the same thing will happen for the Jews in the tribulation days. What does this tell us? Number one, no one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return. Nobody knows. Now, you know there have been people that have tried to predict the coming of Christ. There was this guy named Harold Camping that tried in 1994. He said Jesus was coming in September 1994. Well, guess what? He missed it. So then he came back and said he's going to come in May, I think, of 2010. And then he said October, or 2011, somewhere in there. Two more times he tried to predict. Well, obviously he was wrong. I don't know why people try to predict. There was a guy named Edgar Wisnett. Wisnett. Uh, I remember this. I remember when this book came out in 1988. He sold 4.5 million copies of his book that was entitled 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Going to Come by 1988. And 4.5 million people bought that book to read that book. Well, obviously Jesus didn't come in 1988. It's interesting that Jesus in his incarnate state, you know, as the God-man, said that he did not know the day or the hour. He said the angels didn't know the day or the hour. He said the only person who knew was the, was the Father in heaven, which I thought was really interesting because obviously Jesus never gave up his divinity. He only added humanity. 
So God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that we were just singing about the Trinity, they're one in essence and power and glory. You cannot divide them. We are not, we are not um, polytheistic. We don't believe in three gods. There's one God. That's why we sang three in one. That's why we sang that. There's one God, but there are three personas. It's a mystery. You can't understand it. It's the complexity of God. In the simplicity of God, there is complexity. And so he's uh, talking about that they're, they're one. So, I, you know, you say, well, then how does Jesus not know? How, did, how could Jesus not know what the Father knows? Evidently, the, the Son d- decided not to know. He's, he's made a decision to limit his knowledge, at least in his incarnate state. Now, whether he knows now or not, I don't know. We'll ask him when we get there. But God can do, how many know God can do whatever he wants to do? You say, well, you know, God limiting himself? He does. The Bible says he throws your sins in the sea of forgetfulness and remembers them no more. Now, how can a God that knows everything perfectly, past, present, and future, not know your sins? He chooses to forget them. Somebody ought to say praise the Lord in this house. So I'm glad that God chooses not to do some things and limits himself. And so Jesus doesn't know. And so if Jesus doesn't know when he's coming, why do we think we need to know the day or the hour? Okay? But let me just tell you this. We may not know the day or the hour, but we can know the seasons and we can see the signs. We can know the seasons and we can see the signs. Jesus even said, when you see these things come to pass, lift up your head for your redemption draws nigh. I think he wants us to be aware of the seasons that we're in. And y'all, I'm convinced we're living in the last days of the last days. You know how I know we're living in the last days? Because we're Pentecostal. Do you know that? Joel said, in the last days, says the Lord, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. So I know we're living in the last days. And it's been 2,000 years of church age, and he poured out the Spirit 2,000 years ago. So we're living in the last days of the last days. And by the way, if that seems like a long time to you, that's only a couple days to God. The Bible says that to the Lord, a 1,000 years is one day, and one day is a 1,000 years. So since Jesus went back to heaven, it's only been a couple days. Right? See, we look at things from time perspective, but an eternal God, time doesn't really mean a whole lot. How to get on that. Anyway, so there are signs all around us, and we should pay attention to these. Can I just take some time this morning to share with you some of the signs? So let me just share some of the signs. For years, I have studied prophecy. I, I don't preach prophecy all the time, but I am a prophecy preacher. I can preach prophecy. It's kind of one of those things. There's two areas I've spent a lot of time studying. It's end times, events, and the Holy Spirit. Those have kind of been my two things. And so I, I've studied a lot about prophecy. For years, I have kept up with things that have been going on now for literally decades. Let me give you the one that to me is one of the greatest signs is the, um, is the, the evolution and the creation of the European Union. Can y'all believe that France and Germany actually are united together and do business? And these two countries fought each other. Germany invaded France and occupied it. And yet today... They have all the, all the borders are open and they can travel across and they have this economy that's unbelievable. Matter of fact, it's one of the strongest economies in the world. Well, you say, why is that so important? Well, here's why. Because in the book of Daniel, Daniel saw a vision of the statue and a head of gold and arms of silver and a chest of brass and then it had feet of iron. All of those represented major civilizations, and those legs, or legs of iron rather, and the legs of iron represented the Roman Empire. 
But then he saw the bottom, the feet, and the feet was iron and clay mingled together. And obviously the iron it represents some semblance of the Roman Empire. Well, go look at the, go, go, go to your history books and look at the Roman Empire. What area did they have? It was basically Europe. It's basically Europe, the European Union. So I'm not surprised that the European nations have pulled themselves together in this mighty strong union of independent nations, just like you have ten toes, and yet they're mingled together and they're pulled together. And there are some things that really bind them together like iron, and there's some things that are weak like clay. And some of it is just like when Europe, uh, when England, London, Eng or England rather, Great Britain, just pulled out with Brexit. See what I'm saying? It's, it's a union, but it's, it's wishy-washy. And Greece's economy has been horrible. And so there, there are all these factors that kind of keeps the union unstable, and yet it is incredibly powerful. Let me know, tell you another part about the European Union. By the way, when the rapture takes place, there are three major areas that will be least impacted by the rapture and the resurrection. You know who they are? Britain, China, and Russia. Every other, every other continent will be incredibly impacted because the saints will be gone. America will be impacted. Central America, South America, great number of Christians. Africa is the, the, the most Christian continent in the world is Africa. But the least is China. Well, go look in your Bible and read, well, who are the big three players in end-time prophecy? China, Russia, Gog and Magog. And the revived Roman Empire, Europe. Whoever thought that the, 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 the Germans would give up the Dutch mark? Whoever thought the French would give up the franc? At least for a while, the British gave up the pound so that they could have one shared currency called the euro. I followed the euro before there was internet. I was cutting out newspaper articles before the euro was, was just a thought in people's mind. I saw, I could see it. I thought this is headed in the direction of the coming of the Antichrist. And I would cut out news. I have a file still to this day of the beginning and when it was just a concept. Then it became just an electronic currency. And then they began to print currency. And now the euro is the strongest currency in the world. Stronger than the dollar. And when the rapture takes place and this country is knocked to its knees, there has already been a threat to happen. But oil is based on the dollar. But on that day when the, when the rapture takes place, and I believe our economy will crash and the dollar will drop, then immediately I think they will transfer oil from a dollar base to a euro based. And now you have Europe where the Antichrist is coming out of controlling oil. Y'all, the signs of the times are everywhere. There's more. Um, I think the move towards a cashless society tells us that we're headed in the right direction. I know some of you who are younger can't believe this, but about 30, 40 years ago, there were no debit cards. There was just cash and checks. That's what we did. We used cash and checks. And then these things came along called debit cards. And now they got chips in them. And, and now you talk to anybody under 30 or 40 and say, you got any cash on you? They'll say, no. You can't ever borrow cash from anybody who's under 35. I've tried to do that with my sons. We've gone out to eat, and they didn't pay attention. It said cash only. Dad, I got it. You say, Pastor, you carry cash? Yeah, because for so many years I didn't have enough money I couldn't carry cash. Now I got a little money. I like to carry some. Come on, somebody. Like look down and say, hey, man, there's about 820s in there, a couple hundred dollar bills. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. 
So, so, you know, you're saying, well, that's just normal. Yeah, it's normal for you, but there was a time when that wasn't normal. But now we don't need cash anymore. Just cashless society. So what's the big deal with that? Because once you remove hard currency and you just move to where it's just electronic, then it can be controlled and it can be stopped. Then you're controlled. Counts are frozen. Now you can't get access to your money, which is now invisible. Are you with me? Uh, the dominance of microchips, the prominence of microchips. My oldest son had a dog that just kept running away, so they put a microchip in that dog. Every time he ran away, they'd tap on a computer, and through GPS, they could find him. By the way, that cell phone you're carrying, they know where you are all the time. They know what you're looking at, who you're talking to. They know everything about you. You want to talk about the control of the Antichrist of this world when everything they need to know about you they have access to on your little phone that you've got. It's a sign of the times. When you talk about the microchip, what's the problem with the microchip, Pastor? Because the Bible says that the mark of the beast is 666. It's a number, the number of man. And that the only way you can buy and sell during the tribulation is that you have to have this mark on your forehead or on your hand. And I was talking to a computer science expert one time, and we were talking about this very thing. We started talking about microchips. He said, I think it's a perfectly sound idea. I said, what? And he was a Christian. And he said, no. He said, you can steal cash, you can steal checks, you can take somebody's debit card, but you can't take their head or their hand. He said, I think it's a great idea. He said, just put a microchip in your hand or in the, on your forehead, and when you go in, it electronically scans, and anything you want to buy, he said, you don't have to worry about it anymore. See, that used to seem really far-fetched and sci-fi. Now, it's not. I'm told that military people oftentimes get a microchip put in them, and when they, get, when they have a crash, a helicopter crashes, and they're trying to find the victims, the, 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 the ones that are taken hostage, we find them through GPS. Send in SEAL Team 6 and get them out. See, we all think that's just Jack Bauer stuff, right? You know, we just think that's something out there. But, y'all, it's the times we're living in. And we have things that are happening now that people didn't even know way back then. I had a man named George Britt that for years preached prophecy, and Israel was not a nation yet. And he was preaching in the 30s and 40s, and people told him it was crazy because he said Israel will become a nation in one day. Well, guess what happened in 1948? Yeah, they become a nation in one day. See, there's things in the Bible that just because we don't see it, see the past church couldn't see it, but we can see it now because we're living in the last days of the last days. Is this, anybody getting this? Here's the one that I think is so cool is the 24-hour newscast that enables us to see world events in real time. You ever read in the Bible? Let me go back to those two witnesses. So I, who I think is Moses and Elijah, they'll come down in the middle of tribulation, and they'll have the ability to, that anybody tries to attack them, they can put plagues on them and fire come down from heaven and kill them, which is what Moses and Elijah did when they were on this earth. And they're going to do that for a period of time, and eventually the Antichrist is going to kill them, and their bodies are going to hang in the streets for three days, and people are going to give gifts to each other like it's Christmas. They're going to celebrate the death. That's how wicked the world is. They're going to celebrate the death of these two mighty men of God. But the Bible says that on the third day, life will come back into them, and they'll rise up, and then they'll be caught up, and they'll go. And here's what the Bible says, and everyone will see it around the world. For years, even up into the 20th century, when people preached that, when you had ABC, NBC, and CBS, and, and news only came on at 6 and 11, 
People said, how can that be? It's not possible that all the world can see something happening in the streets of Jerusalem at the same time until something called CNN was created and Ted Turner. And then you had 24-hour news. And now if anything happens around the world, we have immediate access to it in real time and we can see it. Are you listening to the man of God this morning? Don't doubt the Bible. Because God knew everything that was going to come to pass. The prevalence of a global economy. You know, it's this global economy. This is the big thing. We got, you know, we, we talk about China, and China's done some wrong things, and that stinking virus, I hate it. But we're so tied to China, it's sick. Do you know how much land they own in the United States of America through shell companies? Look at everything in your house. It says made in China. And they're tied to us just as much as we're tied to them. And so they can have rhetoric or whatever, but we have a global economy. And how many of you have to get on a plane and fly to Germany or France because of your work? Because you have to go over there because, the, because they have businesses over here. The business you work for is owned by the Swiss. It's owned by the Germans. And so you have to fly over there. Everything is, is tied together in, in the world. It's a global That's why when Donald Trump had an America first economy, I think that move actually went against the spirit of globalism that I think is behind with Satan, which is setting up for the Antichrist, where you cannot buy and sell without his mark. Are you all seeing it? Are you hearing the man of God? You're seeing it. I think people falling away from their faith in Christ is a sign that we're living in the last days. You ever seen a time when people don't care about God, don't care about church? They just live, live in sin, live wrong. And we're in the Bible Belt. It's right here. And people do wrong. And they don't even know about God. They don't read their Bible and they're illiterate when it comes to the Word of God. I think it's a sign of the last days that there is a weeding out, a weeding out, y'all, a delineation that's happening between the true saints of God and the people that are just playing games as well as in, this, in the society of people who just do not care. The signs of the times are everywhere. Here's the second thing. Jesus said that a very significant sign will be the indifference of people. He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming Son of Man. In the days of Noah, it was very wicked, very evil. The intent and thoughts of man's heart was, was wicked continually, and it was so bad that it warranted a worldwide judgment that wiped out humanity except Noah and his wife, her, his three sons, and their three wives. And they were the only righteous people on the earth that wiped them out. And sometimes you think about Noah and you think, okay, well then th that's because our times are wicked and they are wicked. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said the sign of the time of his coming, how you'll know that I'm coming, is that there will be incredible indifference to me and to the things of God. And that's exactly where we're at. People in Noah's day were marrying and giving marriage and having business. For 120 years, Noah's building this ark and preaching. Go read, I think it's 1st first, first, Second Peter. Peter preached. I mean, uh, 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 Noah preached for 120 years while he was building the ark. Preached to people and couldn't get one convert. Man, that'd be a bummer. That'd make you want to go into stocks or something, you know, construction. Or, I'll find something. Well, he's in construction. I think I'd have gone full bore construction. It's interesting that Jesus did not refer to the prevailing evil mankind. He just talked about the fact that people didn't care. People just went about their businesses and ignored God and Noah. And what, what is sobering is that I think this describes many people in America today. Listen to me. Jesus is coming back in the great tribulations. God, God's going to pour out his wrath on this earth. 
those whose names are not recorded in the Lamb's book of life are destined for a devil's hell. And yet people are living their normal, secularized lives and ignoring God. Many people don't know about God, don't care to know. They have no moral compass that's based on the Bible. We used to have that in our society in America. They won't attend church. They won't repent of their sins. A lot of people, if you say Christian, they have a caricature in their minds of what a Christian is. They don't even know what a real Christian is. But listen to me, when the rapture occurs, millions in America will be taken by surprise. And I think it's going to shock and it's going to hurt and it's going to affect and it's going to be terrible and I could take a whole another 30 minutes describing what I think will happen in America when the rapture takes place. But I think when the dust settles and we're out of the way, I think the world then will look around and say, hey, this ain't so bad. We got rid of all those pesky Christians. Don't know what happened to them. Glad they're gone. Maybe the aliens have got them. Maybe they got abducted. Woo, good. Now we don't have to worry about them walking around making us feel bad when we want to do what we want to do. But I'll tell you what, when the tribulation comes, many people wish they had paid attention to those Christians, to those preachers like me. They wish they'd have paid attention when the Holy Spirit convicted them of their sin. The last thing is that the rapture is going to involve removal and separation. Now, verses 40 and 41 are very interesting. And like I said, you can make it fit in the tribulation period and come up with things. You can do it. But when I read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, what I read in Matthew 24 just seems to parallel so much closer. Paul said, for the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's where the word rapture comes from. When you get caught up in something, you know, you're, it's, you're enraptured by it. Okay? So the rapture's not in the Bible. Somebody just took that verse and, but be caught up. And it literally means to be violently snatched. Violently snatched. And when, when the rapture takes place, God, Jesus will violently snatch us out of this earth. And, and we which remain shall be caught up together with the resurrected saints to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Hallelujah. And it's going to happen. And I have a fear of heights. And I believe when, my, when I get that glorified body, whoo, I felt him right then. That fear of heights is going to be gone. Hallelujah. We're going to go soaring through the sky and the stars, wherever that spiritual realm is of heaven. Okay? That's what the Bible says. Well, you take that passage and you look at Romans, I mean, Matthew 24, and it says that two men shall be working in the field. One shall be taken and the other left behind. And two women will be grinding and one will be taken and the other left behind. And so what Jesus is saying is that when he returns for his church, some people will be taken and some people will be left behind. And the ones taken will be born again, right with God, walking daily with Jesus, looking for his return but the ones left behind will be those who were indifferent and cold, who chose sin over Jesus, who rejected God's offer of the gospel, people who even played games with God. And when Jesus returns, it'll separate spouses. It'll separate family members. 
It'll separate employees and their jobs and co-workers at work and neighbors in their, in their neighborhood and teachers and students and members of a carpool when he comes. So in light of all this, what should we do? The theme of the passage that I read to you, the theme is simple. Watch and be ready. Be looking and be ready. Let me tell you three things. Listen to this. Three things that I want you to grab a hold of if you're born again. Since we don't know when Jesus will return, y'all, we have to be looking for him every day. Every day. You're busy. You have a family. Your job demands a lot of you. The list goes on. I understand. Listen to me. Every day, you got to be looking for him. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. Can you honestly say that for the most part, I'll leave you a little room there because we, we don't get it perfectly. But for the most part, day in, day out, for the most part, it crosses your mind, today could be the day that Jesus comes. Now, if you say, Pastor, no, then I would say to you, this sermon, this service is for you. Because it says, for those that look for him shall he appear. Okay, those that eagerly wait for him. And we need to pray, God, forgive me. That's why when I pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and then I get to thy kingdom come, I don't just pray for the kingdom to come where Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years. I say, Lord, I understand this is a two-parter, and I pray you'll come. In this church age, help me to be ready to go when you come. We should pray it every day. Here's the second thing. So be looking for him. Second, fight indifference. Fight indifference, y'all. Don't ever get to the point where you get apathetic and complacent and lethargic and you get so wrapped up in this world, you cannot afford to become indifferent to God and the things of God. The book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes says that you are going to work your whole life, so work hard, and then, in, and then it says when you earn money and you got things, eat, drink, and enjoy the fruit of your labor. That's what the Bible says. Now, it's not like that man who accumulated all this wealth and, and then said, I'm going to kick back and eat and drink and enjoy life. Not that. That's different. This is just saying in overall life, you're going to work hard, and if you save enough money or you're making enough money and you want to go buy a boat or you want to go get a, a new car or you want to buy a dress or a purse and you've got the money, you've, you worked hard, go get it. And if you want a steak from Outback, go get it. Okay. If you want some ribs from the smoking pig, some fried okra, I better quit. It's, it's, we're after 12. Go eat, okay? Because here's why. One of these days, Solomon said, you're going to die. And somebody else is going to get all your toys and your dresses and your purses and somebody else is going to get hired to take your place at work. They're not going to care about you anymore anyway. He said, it's meaningless. But he said, there is one thing that is not meaningless that is incredibly, number one, the most meaningful. This is what, the, what it says. You better fear God and keep his commandments. 
Fear God and keep his commandments. Whatever you do every day, you better fear God and keep his commandments. Don't get indifferent to the things of God. Don't fall in love with this world. Stay on fire for God. Y'all, spiritual things must be first. John prayed. Come on, I'm just preaching today. John, in his little bitty letter, said, I pray that you may prosper and be in health. How many of you like to prosper and be in health? Right? Hold on. The rest of the verse, the man of God, the apostle said, I pray that you may prosper and be in health. Watch this. Correlation. Even as your soul prospers. For me to prosper financially, materially, and to be healthy, there is a direct correlation to my spiritual state. That's the Bible. Here's the third thing. So look for him every day. Fight indifference. And then Jesus said, while you wait, be faithful. Everybody say, be faithful. I want you to say it. I want you to say it because I want you to say it out loud and get him stuck in your head. Be faithful. What does that mean? It means serve the Lord. That means do what's right. Don't be half a Christian. Don't do, don't come to church and do churchy things and act a certain way when your godly parents are around or when you're around your godly spouse or you get around me, but you're going to act a totally different sinful way when you get around sinful people. Don't do that. Don't play games. Don't do that. That's stupid. It means keep sin out and keep Jesus in. It means keep short accounts with God when you sin. Don't play with God. I've said it for years. Keep short accounts with God. Get, this is what we've said for years. I was told this. I'm going to teach you the next generation. You know what they taught me? Put it under the blood. That's a good saying, isn't it? Put it under the blood. When you sin and you do wrong and the Holy Ghost is convicting you, don't keep playing with it and messing with it for a week or two weeks or two months. When God convicts you right then, get along with God, cry and say, God, I'm so sorry I sinned and disappointed you. Forgive me and let Jesus put it under the blood where you can't see it anymore. Keep things right between you and the Lord. And live in such a way that if Jesus would come, there would be no doubt that you are ready to go. I'm just going to go a little bit further here. Don't let this world dictate how you live. Let God's word dictate how you live. I'm just going to preach some stuff. I haven't preached this way in a while, but I'm preaching it today. And that means you don't shack up and you don't move in together and you don't go off on trips with your boyfriend and girlfriend and get a hotel room and sleep in the same thing. And they'd come to church and make everybody want everybody to think you're saved. You're not. You're a sinner. You're a fornicator. That's strong. Nobody preaches like this. But I've been preaching this way for 30-something years. I ain't quitting now. If you want your ears tickled, go find a preacher that makes you feel good about yourself. But that is sin, and you're going to die and go to hell. And I don't want you to go to hell. And Jesus didn't die on the cross and shed his blood so that you can be out there playing with sin that he shed his blood to wash and cover and free you from. Gave his life to set us free. So don't you buy into this world and whatever the world says that homosexuality is okay and two men can get married and two women can get married. No, they can't. They can do something, but in the eyes of God who created marriage, there is no marriage. And the day the church agrees to that is the day we have fallen to the lowest depths. It doesn't mean we have to be mean. It doesn't mean that we have to be cruel. I don't believe in that. I believe you love people. 
So just because I preach like this doesn't mean that I'm mean and cold-hearted. No, I don't. You let me get around anybody that's in sin, and I will love them and be kind to them and treat them good because they're somebody just like me, and I used to be in sin, but I'm not going to condone sin, and I'm not going to tolerate sin. Why? Not because I'm holy, but because he's holy. And I can love you and hate your sin. I can. I can do it. That's the way we're supposed to do it. Still glad you came to church? Jesus told a story of two servants. The first one was wise and faithful. He represents those that are saved and sold out to Jesus and who serve the Lord with all their hearts. The second servant is described as an evil person. He was abusive and liked to party. He knew his master would return one day, but he lived like a man who didn't care. He represents those who are not saved and who live in rebellion against God and don't care about the things of God who hurt other people and take advantage of other people and party on the weekends. I don't care if you go to church, but if that's you, you're living like there is no God. And you're a bad testimony for the rest of us. Eventually, the master of the house did return, just like Jesus will return. And to the guy who was faithful and served the Lord, and even though what he said and how he lived and his value system was not like everybody else's, and people questioned it and didn't understand why, why, why are you so strict with your kids? And why do you all have to live this certain way? Why don't you do what we do? And how come you have these standards? They just kept on plodding, saying that's, that's just how we believe. That's, we just serve the Lord. But you maybe get abused for that and get given a hard time, but you just keep serving the Lord. You come to church and you volunteer and you love people and you help people out of the church. You just keep serving the Lord. Listen to me, one of these days when Jesus comes back, just like that servant, you're going to be rewarded. But that other cat, he got fired. Servant master showed up and found him abusing the other servants and partying on the weekends and, and, and being wicked and sinful. He said, you're fired. You're a hypocrite. Get out of my house. You're fired. And then he got on the Internet and notified all the other people who would employ him and say, don't hire him. You can't trust him. Ruined his life. He didn't ruin him. The man ruined his own life. And they threw him out and cut him off, and he was out there with nothing. And all he could do was weep and gnash his teeth because he had nothing. He had lost it all. And that is a symbol of what will happen when Jesus comes and you're left behind. You partied, you loved the world, you had a good time. Lived in sin, didn't care, came to church, smiled, saw the preacher, you waved at him, said hello to him in public. But you know you're living a lie. Well, when Jesus comes, you'll still be living that lie here. Except you'll be cut off from the only hope you have. You say, well, I'll get saved in the tribulation. Have you read Revelation? Just about all those people die. Not all of them, but the vast majority of them die. You have to be a martyr. If you can't live for him to give your life now, you're not going to live for him to give your life then. Say, preacher, that's not very hopeful. You're right, it's not, because it's reality. But the great thing is, you can serve him now. What will my friends say? What will my unsaved spouse say? Who cares? All you should care about is what God says. Okay, 
You have your eternal soul. My dad preached for years that, that people say, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell because all my friends are going to be there. Well, that's stupidity. But my dad always preached, what kind of friend would drag your soul to hell? You call that a friend? That's not a friend. But there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and his name is Jesus. And he'll stick with you through thick and thin. I'm preaching old school. I need to quit. I don't feel bad about it either. Because I'm spending my whole life just trying to help people see you don't have to go down with the ship. There is a lifeguard. There is a lifeboat that will save you, and his name is Jesus. And I just, I don't know why so many people just have to be deceived by sin and they think that sin is wonderful. And my little party life and my girlfriends, and we go off on the weekends and God knows what you do. It would be embarrassing if your parents saw it. And you just think that's life and it's not. You're down here scraping the bottom of the barrel. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And I don't have to drink something to have a good time. I don't have to shoot up anything to have a good time. I feel sorry for people that do. I laugh all the time just at funny things. I laugh at some of you because of the way you look and some of the things you do. I just, I can find humor in a lot of things. I've learned how to have, I've got joy inexpressible. It's full of glory, peace like a river, love like a fountain. And I don't have to have an external stimulus to make me feel this way. My God, I felt the Holy Ghost right there. I got Jesus. I got the Holy Ghost inside of me. Hallelujah. And it changes everything. Just change it. You better stand. stand. You better hurry up and stay, and I need to quit. You know why I preach like that? I'm intense. I am. I can be intense. I've been told I'm intimidating. I don't understand that because I'm really a big teddy bear. I think it's because I'm passionate about what I do and what I believe. Passionate people are intense. Because I don't want to see anybody in this room go to hell. I'm not up here to entertain. I've made people mad. I've had people get up and walk out of services before I was preaching. I don't care. I'm not here to entertain you or tickle your ears. You can pay tickets to go get that done at Coliseum. When you come in here, my job is to feed you and give you the word of the Lord, try to help you to live right and make it to heaven. I want to see everybody here make it to heaven. That's all I care about. If I have to get a little tense, I'll get a little intense. But know that it's just wrapped in love. I love you so much. God, the love he has for you, you can't even comprehend. But he hates your sin but he loves you. We had a message in tongues and interpretation in the first service. And the Lord spoke to this church in that first service and said the time is short. And the time is drawing near when I shall return. Look for me. Be looking for me. Be ready for me. I gave my life to save you from the wrath of God. God spoke to us. Listen, if the Lord would take the time to interrupt one of our services, and I'm just sharing it in the gist of it with you in this second service, if God himself through the gifts of the Holy Spirit would stop and take the time to speak to this church, 
to speak to all of us and say, make sure you're ready. Don't you think it's important? If God would show up? See, the question that I have is, are you ready? Are you ready? If you say, yes, pastor, I'm ready. Hallelujah. Man, that gives me joy. But if you sit there and you say, if he came right now and the trumpet sounded and there was that shout of Jesus and the archangel and in a split second, in a moment, a twinkle of an eye, boom, all y'all were gone. And I'd look around the room and it would be just me or maybe one or two or three more. What would you do? Is that what would happen? Because what would you do? I can tell you what I would do. After the initial shock ran off, wore off, and I just realized what happened, I'd probably scream at the top of my lungs and run to this altar and fall down and scream, Oh God, no God, no God, please don't leave me behind. Please, God, please don't leave me here. I'm sorry, please. Please, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. The problem is, you may be sorry, but it's too late. Pastor, you're being sensational. I am because this is sensational. I don't have to be gimmicky. It is sensational. It's scary if you're not right with God. I want everybody here to be right with the Lord. So with every head bowed, please, and every eye closed. If there's anybody in this building that will say, Pastor, I am under conviction. God used this message today. I am not right, and I have realized I need to get right with God. I, I wouldn't be ready. I'm not ready. I want to get ready. If that's you and you want to get ready, raise your hand and throw it up just as high as you can. Quickly, one, two, three, go. Just raise it up. Amen. Hands going up. Hands going up. I need to be saved. I need to, maybe I, you're backslidden. I need to be restored. Come on, just hold your hand up for just a minute. I'm looking across the room. Thank you. I appreciate the honesty. I do. Okay, put your hands down. Thank you. Thanks. For, I, I appreciate you being honest. You don't have to raise your hand. Nobody said, but you did. And I'm really, really proud of you. I really am. What courage. We're going to do something I haven't done in a while. I love to do it. We did it in the first service. We have people that had their hands raised in the first service. If you're, if, you're in, if you're a sinner or you're a backslider, I think that's even worse. Where you once were saved, but then you went in sin. You're still coming to church. See, backsliders will still come to church because they love the singing. They love the music. They're even entertained by the preaching. They even like to feel some tingled goosebumps, but they have no intention of getting right with God. They leave it still in their sins. But if you're backslidden right now, God's giving you another chance. You need to pray and say, oh, God, I'm sorry. I repent of my sins. So we're going to pray the sinner's prayer. I need your help. Will everybody do it so that those who raise their hand, and we're quite a few, can get ready. So here we go. Ready? Go with me. Here we go. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. You know it, and I know it, and I am so sorry for my sins. I failed you. Please forgive me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Please, God, take them all away. I believe you died for me, Jesus. I believe you rose again. You have the power to save me. Please save me. Right now, I turn from my sins. 
I'm not going to sin anymore by your help. I'm going to do what's right. I accept you as my Savior. Come on, y'all. I accept you as my Lord. Right now, I'm going to serve you all the days of my life. So thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me a chance. Thank you for changing me. Thank you for writing my name down in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Every head up, every eye open. If you prayed that prayer this morning, God saved you. If you had faith, you lean on the grace of God, God saved you. So in anticipation that some people got right with the Lord, let's celebrate because they're celebrating in heaven right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. So what does that mean now for you? Serve the Lord. Read your Bible. Pray. Come to church and live right. Walk in relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Can we now just lift our hands and thank him for the promise of his coming? And would you tell the Lord, Lord, I'm ready. Lord, I wish you'd come today. Come on, y'all. Lord, I wish you'd come today. It'd be all right if you came today, Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you. I know I've preached today. I've preached end times, preached the gospel. I've preached hard. I know, God, I've preached with intensity. And I thank you for the people that said they need to be saved and got saved. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. God, that's what it's all about. I just pray you'll help these people now to walk and live in their relationship with you and just serve you every day, God, because when you change somebody, you change them. I'm so glad you changed me. And so, God, we just thank you. Jesus, we pray you'll come back. Come back today. That'd be all right. That would be all right. Return today. Help us to be ready, God, for your coming. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us Sunday mornings. Our service times are 9 o'clock and 1045. For more information, please visit us at highpraises.org.